Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. When asked why he often tackled serious social and political issues in the fantastical stories of his series, The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, who struggles with sponsors over political content became legendary, famously said he could have aliens say things that Democrats and Republicans couldn't. Serling was not the first person to realize the advantages that speculative fiction provide to authors who want to address complicated subjects. That science fiction and fantasy stories also often deal with issues of war and peace provides even more potential interest for students of strategy. While one may not be willing to wade into specific current controversies about war and peace, one can learn a lot from how the crew of the Enterprise, for example, dealt with their Klingon adversaries, or the rebellion of the genetically engineered rebel Khan, or from how the Rebel Alliance organized itself to overthrow the Galactic Empire. For a variety of reasons, science fiction offers both a mirror and a possible guidebook for students of strategy hoping for new insights into timeless problems. This is the guiding spirit behind a new collection of essays to boldly go leadership, strategy, and conflict in the 21st century and beyond from Casemate Publishers. Our guests today are the two editors of the collection, John Klug and Steve Leonard, who are here to discuss the genesis of the project and its potential implications for the study of strategy. Jonathan Klug is an assistant professor in the Department of Military Strategy Planning and Operations at the U.S. Army War College and a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of New Brunswick. He is an award-winning instructor who has also taught at both the Air Force and Naval Academies. Steve Leonard is Senior Assistant Dean at the University of Kansas School of Business, as well as a Senior Fellow at the Modern War Institute. He is the author, co-author, or editor of five books and also a prolific military cartoonist. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Ron. So what inspired the two of you to try to put together this project? So um, the genesis of this project dates back to about 2018 uh, to a, a Modern War Institute uh, event at West Point. Uh, we were we were sitting over dinner and uh, uh, Mick Ryan, who writes the foreword for the book, um, uh, Australian Major General, Mick sits across the table and he says, you know, I've got a great idea for a book. And as he lays the idea out, uh, the light bulbs go off over my head. Uh, the, 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 everything starts to spin in the room. And I said, hey, i got an even better idea. Let's do this as an anthology. I know just who to bring in. And the project launches. And uh, it took us about a year, year and a half to get a proposal put together, get it accepted by a publisher. But then it was just a matter of, you know, getting the idea off the off the ground and pulling John into the equation um, and then 
dipping into our collective networks and pulling people in that we thought either had a great passion for science fiction or a related area and then bring them in and give them some really basic guidance and then let them run free. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't have a, 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 a face-to-face conference of any sort for these folks because that, that sure would, those conversations certainly would have been a lot of fun if you'd been able to do that. Oh yeah, no. We this is this is absolutely a, a pandemic passion project mm-hmm. uh, because we probably would have gotten people together at some point, but uh, the pandemic prevented that. So sure. everything that we did was was done remotely, either by phone call, email, text message, whatever. Uh, really a weird way to do a book, but it worked, uh, and it worked really well. I thought. Uh, in fact, I have no idea how a regular book is put together like this. Uh, this is all I know now. It's it's uh, you you surround yourself with a virtual collection of friends and colleagues, and you start to write. And and John, so how did you decide which which topics or which sources to bring in? Did you did you just uh, ask people to to come at you with ideas about what they were most interested in, or did you have an idea of things that you knew had to be covered? I I think we were. We wanted to allow everyone to have the maximum amount of freedom mm. to bring what they really uh, wanted to explore. Use whatever science fiction universe, if you will, uh, to really uh, explore what tended to be people's passions or, or, or interests. Um, I think for me, part of it is also nostalgia, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So we're talking about some of the uh, the classics of science fiction and you you really have the full uh you know you really have a really broad range of of science fiction you know there were obviously some some chapters that dealt with some of the same settings but i think we were kind of surprised at just how broad uh it it was but i think people were excited about that the only thing that we really did was we created um several bins for people to kind of use as a framework for thought. So, you know, when we, we kind of almost a negotiation, Hey, what are you thinking? You know, what, what, you know, well, that could fit in perhaps, you know, bin number, whatever, you know, with, with a certain bumper sticker. And, and that really proved, I think, to be a nice balance between flexibility, but giving some, really basic structure. Right. And, and I was very impressed by the, that you, obviously there's a lot in here about Star Wars and Star Trek, which we can get into in a bit, but that, that the, the net was cast pretty wide. And Steve, I have to say, because you are here, that I was very much happy to see that you had an essay on Planet of the Apes with the, uh, Beware the Beast Man. Because I have a thought about Planet of the Apes, which has always bothered me. And that is that while the initial series of films held together, that there's something missing in our in the the new series of Planet of the Apes films, and I think it's maybe because they're trying too hard to explain how the Planet of the Apes started. Whereas the, part of the shock of the original Planet of the Apes is simply dis- you know for a, a a a man from the 20th century to discover. Sorry, I won't I won't do any spoiler alert here, but to discover um, what his people were capable of, um, and. It's different when it's when it's sort of sprung at you at the end, right after after you've watched this whole story go in one direction, um, as opposed to trying to trying to watch uh, filmmakers try to sort of create an explanation for how apes end up talking and people don't. 
What do you think about that? That's that's a really good summation. Um, and I've watched all the new movies, and I enjoy the new movies. The They spin a really good narrative, but there's no depth beyond the, the narrative. And I think that you, you kind of hit on it at um, the underlying story behind Planet of the Apes. And there's so much there that there was more there than I knew. Um, I always loved the series. And I loved the implications of, you know, Charlton Heston traveling forward in time and seeing, you know, the, the consequences, the decisions of, of that era. But then in the process, realizing just how much the my personal favorite, Rod Serling, had injected into that original exactly. uh, into that original screenplay and and how that played out in the film was just oh, it was just beyond fascinating. And then it became like, okay, I have to watch this again and again and again. And I think in over time, History will not be as kind to the current films just because there's no there there. There there are good stories, but there's no there there. You go back to that the other stuff. Okay, there's so much campiness involved, but there's a lot of there there also. It has cultural and societal significance that just are not existing in the current films. And I think that's kind of what John and I saw in a lot of these things is that you start to dig into classic science fiction. It's classic for a reason. Because there's so much depth to it, um, and, you know, uh, but that's a great example. And that was also a great way to tie in my two favorite things, which I love to talk about Planet of the Apes. And I love to talk about Rod Serling and tie those two things together. And wow, I was just off and running with that. That's good stuff. John, I saw your, your hand up. I want to come to you, but I also want to throw in it's I'm sorry. I didn't know you guys when you were first putting this project together, because I want to write that essay on Charlton Heston and the end of the world, which will pulls together Planet of the Apes, the Omega man and Soylent green, his great trilogy of, <sighs> of end of the world stories. And, I'd love to know, and I need to do some research on what was going on in Chuck's life that he decided to take the, those three roles on such uh, depressing end of the world stories. I'm, I, I speculate it's because he had reached the point where he was no longer credible as a, as a traditional leading man. And so he was facing the end of his own life, if you will. And so he was so good at playing the last man. Um, I'm going to throw that out there just because I wanted to say that to people who I thought would appreciate it. And then send all letters and comments to War Room. I saw Soylent Green up on Showtime last night and I wanted to watch it. And I was with my favorite uh, movie viewer in the evening and she's very unlikely to say, sure, pull up a movie from 1968 and let's watch it about the end of the world and eating people. Uh, yeah. Honey, it's a really good movie. Good and, movie. and you you and all three of us, we probably grew up on those Charlton Heston films. Indeed. You know. God, I love. I, I used to. I used to watch those on reruns all the time as a kid. I, I would never miss it when they came on. I loved those right. movies. Yeah, so true. So, John, I, I, I saw we uh, talking about Planet of the Apes. We got your attention. Go ahead. Well, I I think it it goes right to what Steve was talking about. I mean, when we did these um, different chapters and we edited these different chapters, it, it was a way to tie back to some of the things that we enjoyed um, in the past, the, whole, the, the the nostalgia piece of it. But specifically for Planet of the Apes, we had a really good discussion about um, the current set of films, mm-hmm. the original set of films, my weirdness with the cartoons and the television series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but the really interesting one, and, and this, is, this to me it's interesting, is going back to the original novel mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the novel of planet of the apes and it's interesting to see how 
you know, you talked about there's no there, there there's no there there for the current set, and there was much more uh, with the original '60s set of, of movies, which I can I can never get the Omega Bomb out of my my head. Right. You talk about the original movies. I think about uh, uh, what was it, Battle Beneath the Planet Beneath of the, the Planet Apes. of the Apes. I got to say, Beneath the Planet of the Apes is. Uh, I like it a little more than I like the original, even though the original is great, but the, because, precisely because it forces us to really confront, right? The, the beast man, as it were. Well, that's the, that's the interesting thing to me about the, the novel is the inevitability in the cyclic nature mm-hmm. of, of man uh, destroying themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and being uh, supplanted um, really because of, uh, of the the inherent flaw in in humanity mm-hmm. in, in man, mm-hmm. but then you see humanity from an ape perspective. So it, it's interesting um, that that '60s version picked up on some of that, but went a slightly different direction. Right. Well, and and in the essays, right as I said, there's a there's a, a goodly amount of Star Wars and Star Trek, and um, at the ris- at the risk of provoking uh, even more angry cards and letters from our listeners. Um, I'm not going to ask you to say which one you prefer, but I, I want to throw out a thought about Star Wars and Star Trek and strategy that um, I got out of reading your essays, but also thinking about it. And one is that the Star Trek universe, as it's developed from the original series to the other series, is by its very nature open-ended, um, It's which, make, which means that Star Trek has to engage anew with questions of how do different species deal with each other? How do different planets deal with each other, different cultures, right? These are timeless questions. Whereas one can see in the Star Wars films that the once George Lucas came up with the original idea, which was basically just a, hey, let's watch these kids, uh, let's, let's watch this ragtag band you know, blow up an enemy base, is they had no idea what to do with the rest of the story. Um, so much so that they just kept finding, hey, let's find another base for this ragtag group to blow up. Um, and even after you know, the idea that somehow the rebels won, but then they didn't win because the first order then replaced the rebels and they just got to keep doing this over and over again. Um, which series works better for trying to understand strategy? Because it seems to me that there is no strategy in Star Wars. None of it makes any sense at all. If you think about it strategically, why does the empire keep building these things um, with a flaw in them so they can be blown up? Um, and is it just a, is it just because the Star Trek series is pitched at a higher intellectual level than the Star Wars series? There, I said it. So that's a that's a great question, and and I'm not sure it's one that we've talked at length. Um, but I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's a, there there's some serious. Tr- and I saw something yesterday uh, that gets to this. Something little, the little things that you see planted throughout Star Trek. And there was a, I saw a picture of Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner fiddling around with a three-dimensional chessboard. And, and, and it's just, it gets to that intellectual thread that they pull through Star Trek. And I think that goes back to Roddenberry mm-hmm. and Roddenberry was an odd cat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think yeah. anybody will say anything other than that, um, <laughs> yes. but you know, but he, he, he functioned at a different level. Um, um, I think you could argue that uh, that Star Wars has a better narrative storytelling to it, um, at least initially. But Star Trek did really well in the little bursts of you know uh, of storytelling, and there's so much more cultural and societal nuance uh, to Star Trek 
um, than there is to Star Wars. Although I would say that today, that what you see as with the with the with the Disney series, mm-hmm. that they're really starting to tease all that out, and they're kind of going back to that formula that was so successful initially for the original series of Star Trek. Um, so yeah, I like I like John. I wouldn't go one way or the other on which one is better, but I'll tell you, there's some really interesting differences that give you so much fodder to discuss. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, strategy absolutely. Star Trek, there's so much more strategy to it. Um, and then you look at the when it was when it was put together, what was going on in the world at that time. There's so much there to draw from that you know you mentioned just how they deal with the Klingons mm-hmm. we, we all know the Cold War we were in the midst of the Cold War at that point and mutually assured destruction was a real thing and 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 they were dealing with all of that mm-hmm. subtly maybe not so subtly uh, dealing with everything from proxy wars to you know race relations all that stuff weaved in uh, and I think that's what makes great stories. And you you really hit the you really hit this on the head when we first started when you talked about um, uh, Rod Serling's comments about you know I can have aliens talk about this stuff right and and people will be attracted to it and they'll and, and you could do that with Star Trek Star Wars we're getting there mm-hmm. um, that canon just keeps growing and expanding and as it does it tends to follow a I think the, those people grew up on star Wars or star trek and they saw the that you could do all that and so that's being infused now mm-hmm. well and john you had your hand yeah, up i ahead, know john. you got something well i i think to build on your point about the context in which each uh series is really built you talked about the cold war aspect i remember reading long long ago about how the federation was essentially the united states the vulcans were essentially the british the klingons were the soviets and i think someone said the romulans were the the uh uh, chinese at the time but Mm -hmm. there's there's that part of it the other thing is is you look at star wars you know you look at the context for star wars it's the 70s it's it the it's that latter part of the cold war it's uh not that far removed from uh, inflation and the the oil crisis and 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 all those other things that are involved that people wanted to escape mm-hmm. and it was it was uh Lucas bringing back the space opera and more more to the point the the sense of the serials the things that people used to watch in the in the great depression you know i I remember as a kid one of my favorite PBS shows was something called Matinee at the Bijou and they would replay all the old uh, serial stuff and like what was it? Roy Rogers uh, <laughs> as a and Seriously, almost Buck like Rogers, uh, man. Uh, yeah, uh, Flash Gordon. Well, Flash and that's that's what people say that uh, Lucas really based Star Wars off of. He was approached mm-hmm. by De Laurentiis to actually do, uh, or he I'm sorry, he approached De Laurentiis to do Star Wars, and and De Laurentiis said no, who apparently had the rights to it. But anyway, um, I, I I think. More to the point, why Roddenberry sets up, uh, a, a, you know, world building uh, to create a universe. It's much richer mm-hmm. in, in that way. Lucas was going for something very different. And I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I'll bring another one in. Dune. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the 85, uh, I want to say it's 85 version of, of Dune, which still has certain, I still have a certain love for, even though it's got some terrible aspects to it. But anyway, that was supposed to be Star Wars for adults. Right. You know, right. this is that that whole notion of 
Uh, that's what they said, right? right? The people who were made uh, Dune at the time. And I think this new incarnation where we saw the first half uh, of it, it gets at that broader uh, sense with the houses and the international or intergalactic really uh, intrigue. So when you're talking about strategy, um, to to use one of Al Lord's expressions, kind of a long way around the barn, but uh, strategy in certain um, universes, when you're talking about grand strategy or those larger aspects, there's certain... Um, science fiction milieus that are better for that where there are others that are better if you're trying to talk about something else so right I'll leave it at that well and, and this um I'm, there's there's a lot to get into there but i want to throw this in as well especially in in the the in part five of your book and i would say scattered throughout it when you talk about the rise of the machines you start talking about how do human beings deal with non-human aspects like how do we deal with it you have an essay on captain trips so essentially about the disease in the stand you've got essays about relations with robots. Um, and I would say, and earlier on, Heather Gregg has a great piece about leadership and about and, about gender roles. Um, and uh, Jackie Witt talks about this as well, that um, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Gregg and Dr. Witt both teach here at the uh, U.S. Army War College, which is you know, good for us. But the, um, the, the, the ways that the, um, the works that you discuss have tried to get at these issues of uh, how do different types of people relate to each other? And what is the responsibility of a leader to recognize difference, to respect difference, and to deal with it? Right. There's there's all this criticism uh, out there about you know that somehow the military is becoming too woke, um, when it is perfectly understandable that the more different we be, the, the more different kinds of people that are in the military, the more you have to think about how you're going to deal with people who are different. And so, you know, going back to to Serling's comment about having aliens say things that the Democrats and Republicans can't is what do you think these uh, science fiction writers can tell us about how leaders should imagine leading groups of diverse individuals, human beings, machines, Wookiees, whatever? I'll throw that to both of you. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a really important subject. And we, we included the, this whole aspect of things in the book for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not because... Uh, either one of us are especially woke is that, you know, you serve enough time in uniform, you, you deal with different people, you deal with different cultures, you deal with different uh, genders, you deal with a little bit of everything. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, all anybody should care about is that people can do the jobs that you've asked them to do mm-hmm. and they can do it to the best of their abilities. And if, and, and we help them get to be the best versions of themselves possible. And, and diversity is who we are. Uh, you know, if in the military, our military should reflect and be a reflection of society in general. And I think we, we're generally there, um, which which makes I think both of us probably scratch our heads when we see, you know, when you see a story that somebody has a particularly difficult time dealing with women. It's like, but why? Mm-hmm. Why? Seriously? I mean, or or anything else. And, and, but I think what the science fiction does in this case is it gives us an opportunity to say we can look at how we deal with robots. And and I didn't write a chapter for this, but if I had room in my uh, in my hopper for one more chapter, it would have dealt with how Asimov used the robot novels mm-hmm. as a way to explore this. Mm-hmm. And not just the ethics of 
of artificial intelligence, but actually he dealt with, through the robot novels, he dealt with discrimination. He dealt with bias. He dealt with all the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis, except instead of pointing at humans, we were talking about robots. And, and, and that gave you that safe space to be able to explore not just diversity, but the, the prejudices that, that uh, tend to govern society. Um, and, and that give you an opportunity to look at that and say, well, that's awful. <laughs> and then hopefully reflect back on it and say, no, wait a minute, we do this right. and we do this to these people or this group. And, and maybe we should relook how we do things. And I think that's where we, again, it goes back to Serling's comments about, you can have aliens talk about stuff that you can't have regular people talk about. And, and in this case, you can use science fiction to explore those cultural issues, those societal issues that are, aren't necessarily comfortable uh, subjects to discuss, but you throw it into a different universe and say, and let everybody look at how uh, the old school detectives treat the new school robot detective. You know, oh, that's, you know those robots are useless, you know, they, blah, blah, blah. But it, it the, that science fiction allows you that safe space to be able to explore those issues. And then honestly, then you could take them and drop them into a classroom and say, hey, let's just talk about this. Right. And let's talk about how Asimov dealt with the robot issue and then get people deep into a discussion of that without even realizing what you're really talking about. See, that's good stuff. John, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the, one of the key things in science fiction is what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and this, this, really, uh, this really gets at it. Um, I mean, Max Brooks's chapter Romulans and and, and Remans is 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 phenomenal in this way, and you know, Kira Wilson's of X wings and Y wings. You know, Jackie's chapter, all that you touch, you change, and 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 Steve's, uh, you know, chapter. I, I think it's interesting how science fiction can uh, explore uh, the other, if you will, in in um, in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So. Planet of the Apes is a classic uh, science fiction example of the role reversal. Mm-hmm. So getting uh, the audience to think about things from another perspective. So in other words, when when now uh, it, if you were in the majority in the 60s, now role reversal, now you're in the minority. And, and, and what is that like mm-hmm. um, and, and how to how that's uh role reversal i think ironically perhaps uh, the met much maligned tim burton uh planet of the apes may may actually portray that the 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 best out of all of them it, that 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 role reversal so um so many things but i, I think max brooks's chapter is, is a, a very important one that that uh, if people are interested in the book, they should they should read. Absolutely, you know, I I see Steve uh, typed in in the chat here, right? The phrase "to serve man," right? One of the great one of the great Twilight Zone episodes, one of the great titles. Um, one of the interesting things about translation, about how cultures understand each other. Um, the the uh, you know, it can mean a lot of things. Um, and and it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. Thank you. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert for a 65-year-old uh, television series, but uh, what are you going to do? Um, but the, uh, you know, and, and oh, and by the way, Soylent Green is people, everybody. Um, but uh, this issue of, you know, that we should be reading, we read a variety of literatures, not just for the 
uh, for the short-term pleasures of the story, but for what they might help us to learn and to understand. Uh, what uh, what do you recommend to a student of strategy if they wanted to read some read a piece of speculative fiction that was uh, that you think would teach them something interesting about strategy? So, in other words, right, not to not to say right, this is this is uh, broccoli. I need you to eat it, but rather this is a great story that also has important insights in it. Is there is there a particular work that comes to mind, and you say, you know, you student of strategy, you should see this or read this. Well, I, I already mentioned. I'll, I'll I'll jump in. I already mentioned Dune, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think that uh, if you're talking the way you pose that question, you know about strategy, mm-hmm. I think Dune is such a a, a a deep setting in the sense that the author Frank Herbert created all these different houses and different organizations with with different goals. I think it does a great job of, of replicating that strategic competition or, or a great power, whatever term you de jure you want to use for it. I think that's very useful. If it's something that's perhaps a little bit closer um, in, in terms of time, as far as technology goes, when Steve and I talked to the space force association, they asked a, a similar question. And I mentioned the expanse, mm-hmm. the early ones, just because it, it stays grounded for, you know, the next, I don't know, three, 400 years. I mean, these things always take longer. We don't have a flying car yet. And that was in science fiction eons ago and, and the original shield. Uh, but True. I digress. But we do have, um, we do have ri- yeah. two-way wrist radios. I was walking with my department chair in the hallway and she got a call and was able to talk. And I realized that was like, that was a Dick Tracy moment right there that she was able to take a phone call on her, on her wrist, two-way wrist radio. If somehow we got to get get smart in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll nobody. I'll I haven't taken my shoe off yet to do that. <laughs> well, Steve, what about but, you? Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so my thing, and like John mentioned, we've had this question before, and I, I point to uh, Asimov's original Foundation series. Mm. Uh, when you're dealing with psychohistory and and um, uh, events in the macro sense, uh, that you have this long term objective, this goal that you want to achieve, and, and everything that has to fall in place to get there. And, and I, I use that in class even as an example for those who have read it, that that's a great example. And I hate to use the Licky model, but it's a great, it's a great example of ends, ways, and means in action mm-hmm. and, and, and infusing risk into the equation. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on in there, but broadly, the, the three original books of the Foundation series are, you know, for me, we're always fundamentally about strategy. And as a, I read those as a junior high student, and I still remember the spark that put in me, which maybe wasn't a good thing to put in a 14-year-old kid, but it, it made me want to pursue um, a career as a strategist. It, it really did, because I could, you, know, you see the world beyond where you're at and realize that you can get there, but the amount of effort and time and patience and resources that are involved to get you there and and how complex uh, a world we live in and so so how difficult it is to do all that, but it's doable. And and that that, uh, foundation woke that up in me. Interesting. So we are just about out of time. So I got to ask the final question I promised I was going to ask you both. And that is obviously Kirk or Picard. 
you know, I can go either way. I, I, I love them both. And, and it just depends on the situation. If you, you know, if, if, if you want the tactical commander on the ground at the time, you need Kirk. But if you really want somebody who's forward thinking, who sees the big picture, who has a more nuanced approach to the world, I would say Picard. All right. But let's not forget Pike. Now, Pike is going to come up. What a, Janeway. Or Janeway, right? I mean, let's not forget. Uh, right? Admiral Janeway, right? Uh, Cisco. I love Cisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the one the one in Enterprise kind of wore me out after a while. Uh, but uh, that, that's, that was a bad writing. But... Uh, Fair well, I'll, I'll just I'll just say uh, who's Picard? Ooh, see, that's, <laughs> there you go, there you go. And it's Spock over Data. Yeah, yeah. And and, and quite frankly, I like Jordy, but but Scotty's the man, right? Oh yeah. But and, and, and I'll go one further. Uh, Connor Q, please. please. Oh Con- yeah, not even comparison. Honestly, yeah. Well, these are the kinds of insights that we hope to bring to these discussions on A Better Peace. And John and Steve, I could go on and on about this, but we are just about out of time. I was going to say that the best part historically is apparently William Shatner's particular form of delivery was born out of the fact that he was the understudy in a production of Henry V back in Canada. And he was surprisingly of... Uh, had to appear as Henry V, and he wasn't quite ready. He was a little unsure of his lines. And so as a result, he cut, he stopped every so often because he had to think, my you know, wee band of brothers. And he got good <laughs> reviews for that. And apparently he learned from that experience that that form of delivery had a purpose. So that, that I, there's a lesson in there about strategy and learning and how we go. And I don't know what it is, but, like that. but uh, Steve Lender and John yeah. Klug, thanks yeah. very much for being here on a better piece. Ladies and gentlemen, please take a look at uh, to boldly go. Uh, if you're interested in any of these subjects, we have only scratched the surface and there is a lot to read, but John and Steve, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you, thank you. You bet. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Please send us your comments on this program and all our programs. Please send us suggestions for future programs. Uh, please subscribe to A Better Piece if you have not already. And if you have not already, you really should. And then after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, which helps other people to find us. We're always interested in broadening this community for more discussions like this one. And even though this discussion is over, um, we look forward to welcoming you to our next one. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.